Good morning. How are you guys doing? It's good. All right. Good stuff. Y'all ready for Christmas? Yeah, I know a lot of us are getting geared up to, to travel and, and go out of town. I know that Jen and I will be, we've got, well, we'll be here next Sunday, but then right after that we'll be heading off to Texas, great state of Texas, go see some family. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series through, our Advent series through Isaiah, so we're doing Christmas in Isaiah. Uh, so we're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. I'll give you a moment to turn there. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words will be on the screen behind me, and so you can also follow along uh, up there. Um, by the way, uh, I forgot I was going to do this, but uh, I was just thinking about this. Um, we got a lot of people jo- who join us online right now, obviously, because we're, you know, we're somewhat limited in our capacity, but... Uh, two special people who join every single morning, and they text me every single morning, are uh, my grandparents, Mama and Pop-Pop, and I just wanted to say, hello, Mama and Pop-Pop, love you guys. Every single Sunday morning, sitting there, they text me, tell me they love me and that they're watching, uh, love them, they love the Lord, they're just, they're awesome. So I just wanted to say hello to them, so let them know. Um, all right, let's read the text, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you have kept your promise to send a Savior who breaks the yoke of the oppressor who sets us free from our sin. God, I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear your word. Give us eyes to see. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word this morning, God. I pray for those that don't know you this morning, God, those that are not born again, that today 
would be the day of salvation for them. And I pray that you would encourage and build up your saints, build up your people, God, with your word. Lord, please come and be with us now. Be with me as I preach. Apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. There's nothing I can say that can change any person here, God. Only you and only your word can, tra- can change somebody's heart. So I pray that you would do so this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to give you some background to the passage that we just read there, Isaiah 9. Okay. So um, it's this is the same setting. You guys might remember a couple weeks ago, Thomas preached on Isaiah chapter 7. And if you'll recall, uh, in Isaiah 7, what had happened was Israel, the people of God, had been split into a northern and a southern kingdom. And Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom, which was also called Judah. And the kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the northern kingdom and uh, Syria. So uh, the nation of Syria and the northern kingdom, uh, also called Ephraim, had joined together and they were threatening to invade Judah. And so Ahaz, King Ahaz and Judah were pretty afraid of this. And so if you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, came to Ahaz and said, hey, you don't need to be afraid because it's not going to happen, okay? The northern kingdom and Syria are not going to come in. They are not going to invade you, and, they are, and they're not going to be able to overthrow you. Just trust in me. But instead of trusting God's word, Ahaz refused of tr- to, to trust God, and he instead turned to Assyria and to its king for help. And we actually can read about this in 2 Kings 16, 7 and 8. We see exactly what Ahaz did instead of trusting God. This is what it says. It says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the, from the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So, <laughs> don't miss what's going on here. Not only is Ahaz not trusting God, but he literally robs the temple of God to pay the king of Assyria to come and help it. I mean, he, it's, he goes much farther than just refusing to trust the Lord. He basically sells out. And he completely empties the temple of God so that he can go pay off the king of Assyria to come down and help him. And as a result, the Lord pronounced judgment upon Judah. God basically said, oh, you'll get the help of Assyria, all right. You'll get the help of Assyria. What happened is that Assyria took the payment from Ahaz And Judah essentially became a vassal state of Assyria, and they had to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. And while they didn't get completely overrun and they didn't get taken into exile by Assyria, they were basically uh, subjects to the king of Assyria from that point forward. God handed Judah over to the tyrannical rule of the king of Assyria because of their sin. And it is into this darkness that God speaks this gracious word in Isaiah chapter 9. The people are living under oppression. They are living under this tyrannical rule. 
But God says that the darkness won't last forever. It will give way to light. A Savior King is going to come who's going to free God's people from their oppressors. Now, you might be wondering, well, this is a nice history lesson, but what does this have to do with me? Well, like Judah and like its king Ahaz, we too have each rejected God as our king and chosen to trust in something else. God told Judah, okay, you want Assyria as your king and your deliverer instead of me? Fine, I'll give you over to what you want. And this is exactly what Romans 1 tells us has happened with us in our sin. Listen to what Romans 1 verses 21 to 25 says. Sorry, I should have had it marked earlier. (laughs) For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. So what Romans 1 is teaching us is that because human beings, because people in our sin, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we've chosen to give our lives to the things that God has created rather than God Himself, God has given us what we wanted. He's given us over to the idols that we crave. And He said, okay, you want your idols to fill your life? You want your idols to deliver you? I will give you over to them. And so, just like Judah and Ahaz became enslaved to the Assyrian king in the same way we are now enslaved to sin because we have rejected God. And not only are we spiritually blind apart from Christ, but sin has also adversely affected the world around us. So we have this this spiritual blindness because we're under the tyrannical rule of sin and Satan. We're unable to get out from under this bondage. But We live in a broken world that's been corrupted by sin. And it's easy to see that just by looking around us. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the news and see that things are not the way that they ought to be. Uh, Just a couple of sampling from the headlines from today's news. I was just looking this morning. Uh, Here are four of the first headlines that I saw. Uh, Multiple people stabbed and arrested in D.C. as protest groups clash. Police find vehicle of interest in killing of toddler Carmelo Duncan. Fairfax County police search for suspect in series of assaults. Baby found in crashed car after man shot and killed in D.C. Brothers and sisters, we live in a broken city and in a broken world. God's good design has been corrupted and distorted by sin. And so because of our sin, God has subjected the world to futility in part so that the physical 
brokenness in our lives will be like a flashing sign pointing us to the real problem, which is sin. And make no mistake, Judah's biggest problem was not Assyria, all right? God sent the king of Assyria. Judah's biggest problem and our biggest problem is our sin and the God against whom we have sinned. We need a Savior. And the amazing news is that even though it is our sin that has put us in this precarious position, God has sent a Savior. And this Savior King invites everyone to stop living under the tyrannical rule of sin and to live under His good and eternal reign. But we're going to see what Isaiah 9 has to say about this Savior King and His kingdom. We're just going to look at who is this king and what he's like, and then we'll look at what his kingdom is like and how we can live as citizens of that kingdom. So let's see what Isaiah 9 says about who this king is. In verse 6, we read, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then verse 7 goes on to say that he will sit on the throne of his father David. So this king will descend from the royal line. But he's also, uh, so he's, he's, a, he's a man, he's born, but he's also ascribed divine titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So who could this king be? Well, Matthew chapter 4 Verses 13 to 17 identifies Jesus as the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read it for you. It says that leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew chapter 4 identifies Jesus as this king, as the one who's going to be a light on the land shining in the darkness, as this king who's bringing in, who's ushering in a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And here in Isaiah 9, Isaiah uses four titles or names to describe Jesus the king. First he says that he's the wonderful counselor. This title speaks to his wisdom. Wisdom may be the best possible quality a great king or leader could have. Have you ever had a boss or a leader that you've served under who acted foolishly? can make things pretty difficult, can't it? can lead to disastrous results for everybody. Now, King Ahaz's foolish leadership of God's people led them into a disastrous alliance with Assyria that ultimately resulted in their downfall. Ahaz was foolish and he didn't trust the Lord. He failed to lead. But in Jesus, we have a king with perfect wisdom. The word, the Hebrew word there that's used for wonderful can also mean supernatural or otherworldly. Jesus' wisdom is not like man's wisdom. It's a supernatural wisdom. It's a godly wisdom. 
Jesus is not limited in any way. He's omniscient, which means that He knows all things. Not only does He know all things, but He orchestrates all things. He's sovereign over all things. Jesus is never surprised or caught off guard. His plans are never thwarted. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel will prevail against the Lord. He always does what is right, and He is never puzzled or confused. He never needs to seek counsel from others. That's because Jesus is God Himself. There is no better rule to live under than Jesus. And we never have to wonder if we can trust His Word or His plans. And yet, isn't it amazing how often we act like we know better than Him? Even though He's perfect in wisdom and in counsel. Don't foolishly trust in your own wisdom by disregarding the word of the wonderful counselor. It's his wisdom that is superior, not yours, not mine. Isaiah 9 also says that Jesus is mighty God. And this title speaks to his might to subdue his enemies. The word mighty here is elsewhere translated in the scriptures as warrior. He's warrior God. Jesus is he's not another contender amongst a world of kings. He is the king of kings. The child whose birth we celebrate at Christmas is none other than God Almighty. To him every single knee must bow. He has no rivals or contenders. He's undefeated in battle. Isaiah 42:13 says the Lord will go forth like a warrior, which is the same Hebrew word as mighty right there. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout, yes. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. The promised Savior King, Jesus Christ, is more than capable of handling all who threaten or oppose Him or His people. He is the one who can break the rod of the oppressor of his people. And that is exactly what he has done. Through his death and resurrection, he has defeated both death and Satan. He's also everlasting father. That speaks to his eternal nature. And this is an amazing title because it it speaks both to his eternality and to his divinity. Now, how is it that Jesus could be called Father? Well, it's because Jesus is God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And because Jesus is God, He has no beginning or end. Revelation twenty-two thirteen, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus' reign will never come to an end. He will never be deposed from His throne. He will never grow tired or weary. God's people have a king who is undefeatable and immortal. And He is also the Prince of Peace. How many of you long for peace in your life? Maybe you're longing for peace in our divided nation. Maybe you're longing for peace in your family. Maybe you 
long for peace in your anxious heart. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings that peace about. It is under His righteous rule and reign that true peace is found. Peace between you and God. Peace between you and other people. And peace between you and yourself. You and creation. In a moment, we're going to see how Jesus brings about that peace in His kingdom. But first, let's stop and marvel at what all of this means. The baby that emerged from the womb on that starry night in Bethlehem was wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's why we sing, O Holy Night. He did not cease to be all those things when he was born as a baby in a manger. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mysteriously, somehow, the Alpha and the Omega did not cease to be God when he was born as a man. This is what theologians sometimes call the hypostatic union. It's a fancy term that describes the mysterious way in which Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He's not partially God and partially man. He is fully God and fully man. One person and two natures. But when he was born in that stable, though Jesus has existed always eternally, when he was born in that stable, he became flesh. He took on a human nature and he subjected himself to sickness, to heartache, to fatigue, and even to death. He never stopped being God. He didn't lay aside his deity. Rather, he humbled himself by taking on humanity. God's promised Savior King in Isaiah 9 that would be born to deliver his people and rule them with justice and righteousness is none other than God himself. But why did Jesus subject himself to being born as a man? Why not just come on the clouds, riding on a white horse as the conqueror to rout all the evil people and save all the good guys? Wouldn't that have been easier? Well, it's because there are no good guys. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture tells us. Jesus was born in the flesh so that he could die for us, for our sin. That's why he took on flesh. That's why he became a man. This is amazing. The eternal word, the one through whom all things were made, died for lowly sinners like us so that we could be reconciled to God. It was the only way that we could be redeemed from our sin. Uh, Marshall Siegel is an author and a pastor, and he wrote this. He said, If Jesus were not truly God, then whoever died on the cross, God did not die for our sins, and no other blood would suffice. And if Jesus were not truly man in every respect, then he could not be the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus must be fully God, and he must be fully man to be the sufficient sacrifice for our sins and to be our high priest who can represent us before the throne of God. That's why Jesus, the King of Kings, the Word of God was born. 
This is how he rescues his people from the dark oppression of sin and Satan. He not only silenced our accuser by taking our punishment, but after humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, Jesus rose from the dead and now he is exalted. And he invites everyone to turn from their sin and to live under his rule and reign. You can do that by confessing your sin and trusting in Jesus today. I promise you that Jesus is a far superior and better king than anyone or anything else you could possibly put your trust in. Jesus can lead and run your life way better than you ever can. Trust me. Not only does Jesus call us to trust in him, but Isaiah 9 also teaches that Jesus is establishing a kingdom. So what is this kingdom like? And and how do we live in this kingdom? Well, Jesus' kingdom is a peace-filled kingdom. That's one thing we see in Isaiah 9. Isaiah Isaiah 9, 7 says that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That means that the dominion of his rule stretches on forever. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once declared, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Even as he was born as a baby, Jesus remained sovereign over all things. The great pastor and preacher H.B. Charles wrote this. He said, the baby Jesus rested on Mary's shoulders after she nursed him. Yet the government rested on the shoulders of this baby. Many babies have become king. Only once has a king become a baby. Jesus always has and always will reign over all things. He said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that anyone not living in subjection to Jesus is in rebellion against the creator of the universe. Are you living under his rule? Or are you trying to usurp his throne? Which, spoiler alert, won't work out well for you if that's what you're doing. It's foolish to rebel against him because true peace is only found under his reign. And unlike the king of Assyria, whose reign was one of terror, Jesus' reign is one of peace. See, wherever Jesus' dominion extends, peace extends. And this peace means more than just the absence of hostility or conflict. The Hebrew word is shalom. It means to be complete or fulfilled. To enter into a state of wholeness. One theologian says that shalom is the way things ought to be. This is the peace that we lost in the Garden of Eden due to our sin. The peace we desire is the way things were before sin corrupted all things. See, sin, uh, it disrupted our relationship with God. Adam and Eve, as soon as they'd sinned, they hid from God because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And so they hid in the the bushes and they covered themselves. They knew that they had sinned against God and that they were guilty before Him. Sin also disrupted man's relationship with other people. The first thing that Adam does when God confronts him is he blames Eve. She told me to do it. She gave me the apple. And then we go one chapter later, chapter 4, and Cain murders his brother Abel. So sin brought in, disrupt, it, it, distro, it distorted 
and it corrupted man's relationship with other people, and sin also disrupted man's relationship with creation. Now, the Lord told Adam, he said, the ground is going to bear thistles and thorns. He told Eve that she would now have pain in childbirth. And worst of all, now we are subject to death. Our own bodies fight against us. They ache and they age. We know things are not as they should be. Because of this loss of peace, of shalom, human beings are plagued by anxiousness and fear. Remember, when Isaiah spoke these words to God's people, they were surrounded by enemies who wanted to kill them. There was very little security or sense of safety. The whole nation of Judah was on edge. Security is something every human being desires. The trouble is, just like Ahaz, we try to find it in the wrong places instead of trusting God to bring it about. People desperately try to find it wherever they can. Is anyone here anxious this morning? Do you long for peace? This Christmas especially, we're reminded of just how removed we are from peace on earth. People are angry and bitter towards one another in our hostile political climate. People are getting sick by the thousands and dying because of COVID-19. People are struggling economically. Business owners are watching their businesses close. People are plagued by fear of death and of sickness. But friends, it is into this darkness that the good news of Christmas shines so brightly. A light has come to those who dwell in darkness. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come and He is making all things new. He's the only one who can bring about the the peace, the shalom, the security that you long for. So are you anxious and afraid? Do you long for safety and security? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, unsaved people, people that don't have a relationship with Christ, only enjoy peace in the absence of trouble. But the Christian has peace even in our troubles because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope is not ultimately in this world or in this temporary kingdom. Believers can have peace because our King's dominion stretches over all things and His victory is certain. It's not a matter of if, but when. While the world appears to be chaotic around us, and in some senses it is, it is all under the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not panicking. He's not worried. He's not wondering or trying to figure out what he's going to do next. He is graciously giving people time to repent and to turn to him for forgiveness. All the chaos in the world, all of this, all these these pains, all this brokenness that we sense in the world around us is all meant to point us to our real problem, our sin problem. It's much like if the way that God has created our bodies, right? If there's something wrong, if there's a virus attacking your body or something like that, then your body's going to feel pain. Your stomach's going to hurt. Why is that? Why do you feel pain? It's to let you know that something is wrong, right? There's a reason that 
God created us so that when we touch a hot stove, it's painful. So we remove our hand because guess what? If you don't remove your hand, it's not going to work out well for you. It's, it's, a, it's a warning. That's what all this chaos around us is meant to point us towards. Things are not as, as, as it should be. Our world is broken by sin, and we need to turn from our sin and place our faith and our trust in Christ and hope for His return. God is graciously giving people time to repent, but the day is coming soon when He will once and for all bring about the peace of Isaiah 9 that we read about here. His kingdom will be consummated, and all His enemies and all who oppose His reign will be thrown into outer darkness. God's people, though, will dwell with Him, and that is our sure and certain hope. God's kingdom is peace-filled, and lastly, God's kingdom is also permanent. Isaiah 9-7 says that of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. His throne will be established from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus' reign will have no end because He has conquered death and He will never die again. That means that if you are united to Him by faith, you too will live forever. Death is not the last word for those who are in Christ. That is good news for any believer with an anxious heart this morning. It's good news for any believer who is downcast or discouraged. Brothers and sisters, our future just gets better. Seeing as how we are going to live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth, that ought to radically reorient the way that we live our lives right now. Don't you think? And yet, as I look around, it appears that many professing Christians live like this world is all there is. Many professing Christians live for the things of this world. I want to I read you Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Listen to what Paul writes. He writes to the church, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. My fear for some of you is that while you give lip service to the kingdom of God, you are living for the things of this world. Your God is your belly. You simply go where your appetite leads you. You go to church or you read your Bible or you give money when it's convenient for you. But the consistent pattern in your life is self before God. Your mind is set on earthly things. You're not primarily focused on God and His glory, but on how God can get you what you want. You live for your own pleasure. You glory in your shame. You boast and find enjoyment in things that grieve God, the very things that put Jesus Christ on the cross. How can someone who truly loves Jesus who is a citizen of the kingdom of God, enjoy the things that God hates. I'll never understand how professing Christians can enjoy TV shows that display sexually explicit material. Or how Christians can laugh and sing along to songs that are filled with boasting 
in all sorts of celebration of sin and debauchery. You know, I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but if that's you, I'll just ask you, are you a Christian or not? Do you love God or not? I'm not judging you. I'm just asking you to hold your life up to the light of God's Word. Examine yourself. Does your life look different than the world? Which kingdom are you living in? Are you living in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven? Or are you living in the kingdom that's going to perish, in the perishable kingdom of the world? Are you trusting in God for your salvation and living for Him? Or are you trusting in yourself and turning to other things like Ahaz? Let me urge you not to give lip service to the kingdom of God, but then spend all your time and energy trying to move up the ladder in this temporary kingdom. Because like Philippians 3 says right here, it's very clear. Paul says their end, those who live like that, their end is destruction. Don't keep heading towards destruction. If you know that you have not been living in a manner worthy of the gospel this morning, then the answer is not try harder. The answer this morning is repent. We are great sinners, but Christ is a greater Savior. And no matter how many times we wonder, He will take us back. The only thing that can keep you from God's grace this morning is stubborn pride. Jesus died on the cross to pay for all the sins of those who trust in Him. So turn away from the sin that you've been living in and start following Jesus again this morning. And if you're a Christian, if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're walking with the Lord Remember that this world is not your home. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. The world and all its desires are passing away, but we have a sure and better hope. Listen to the next two verses of Philippians 3. Paul juxtaposes those who are heading for destruction with those who are not. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of an eternal kingdom and we are subjects of the risen, sovereign King of kings. And our future is certain, which means we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to get caught up in this passing kingdom. Neither Republicans nor Democrats can deliver the shalom that we all long for. It's not happening. Only Jesus brings about that peace. Only King Jesus can right what is wrong with the world, and He will. So I urge you, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't lay up treasure on earth. Don't put your trust in men. In many ways, we dwell in a land of darkness but the light of the world has come. Jesus is the promised Savior King who came to deliver us from the bondage of sin and into His peace-filled, permanent kingdom. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up this morning and we're going to close out our time together uh, with prayer. And if, uh, If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, then I want to invite you to do that today.
Uh, if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, or if you're not sure, maybe you just don't know uh, whether or not you are actually a Christian, I want to invite you to do that. You can do that uh, right in your seat. Also, once the worship team begins playing here in just a moment, we're going to have a couple of prayer counselors right through those double doors there in the back. And I'd invite you to go and pray with somebody if you're going to make that decision this morning. We would love to pray with you. Or maybe uh, you're a Christian, but what I said just a few moments ago, you know uh, that it applies to you. You know that you have been living in sin. And you know that you have not been living like a citizen of the kingdom of God. You, your life looks a lot more like the world. And you know that you need to turn away from that this morning. And you need to seek God's forgiveness and you need to repent. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you about that. So if that's you, you can go through those double doors uh, while we're singing. We would love to pray with you. Or if you just need encouragement, maybe you're overcome by anxiety. Maybe you're overwhelmed this Christmas season. I know... Christmas is a time uh, where we rejoice at the coming of Jesus, but also it can oftentimes be a time of, of grieving, and it can be a difficult time for many um, as we, we deal with loss and, uh, and as we deal with uh, things in our lives that are weighing us down. And so if you need prayer, if there's any way we could pray with you, we would love to do that. Uh, so I'm going to close some prayer, and then the worship team's going to play, and then as you feel led, you can go through those double doors. Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to deliver us from the dark oppression of sin and of Satan. Thank you, God, that you have caused us to be born again to a new and a living hope. Thank you, Jesus, that you've promised to come again and to make all things new. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and store up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.